Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. In the past month, Bill McKibben, whom I uh, debated at the beginning of November, has been on nothing less than a rampage against fossil fuels. He has a campaign called Do the Math, where he claims that it is mathematically and scientifically proven that fossil fuels are causing catastrophic global warming, so catastrophic that we need to make fossil fuel energy practically illegal. Now, many of the points that Bill is making are going completely uncontested by the media. Uh, But they were contested in our debate uh, about a month ago, and I think most of you listening here have probably heard that. Um, So definitely go listen to that. But also, um, because Bill is in the habit of raising literally dozens of alleged reasons why uh, global warming is catastrophic and no one can deny it, I thought it would be helpful to look at Uh, what he gave as his opening statement in the debate, where he gave something like 12 or 13 uh, factual claims, um, you know, all of which he claimed were incontrovertible evidence that we need to essentially outlaw fossil fuels. And and to look at those in a more fine-grained level than is possible, um, than is possible in the space of a debate. So first, I'm just going to play for you uh, McKibben's introduction to these points. Then I'm going to uh, bring on our guest who's going to help us break them down. So here's the introduction. Many thanks to all who organized this evening and to Alex for challenging me to this debate. I'm going to speak quickly tonight. The list of risks to our Earth is long. I think it may make it easier for those of you following at home if you uh, try to write down the points in this debate. I'll number my points to make them easier to follow, and I hope Alex will do the same. I urge you to listen closely to the evidence tonight, especially the dates. This is a fast-changing field, and timely information is crucial. Okay, so that's that's an interesting uh, approach, because basically say I'm going to make a lot of points a dozen points, and yet the audience here is the general public, particularly the student body of of Duke University, presumably doesn't know very much about them. So for me, it throws up a red flag if someone says, I'm going to give you 12 points for something, I'm going to give you 12 new pieces of evidence about a complex scientific field, because the question is, well, how do I, how do I know, how am I going to, how am I going to determine if those are true? Uh, and in that connection, I think when listening to these points and when listening to any kind of debate, uh, probably the two most helpful questions I find to ask are, one, what is this supposed to add up to? Or one, what is the conclusion? Because ultimately we're arguing for we should do X in reality. So what is, what is the conclusion he's arguing for? Because if I know the conclusion, then I can assess okay, this seems like it would be good evidence for this conclusion, or this doesn't seem like it would be good evidence or adequate evidence. Um, and the other thing is just, what, what is my sense of the evidence? Does it, uh, does it 
not only does it add up, but does it does it um, seem to correspond to reality, or do I have absolutely no idea? So if we're just just to ask these seemingly simple questions, what is the conclusion he's arguing for? What is the evidence? Uh, I think I think it illuminates a lot. Um, and on our part, what we're going to do, uh, I'll give you our guest in a second, um, but what we're going to do is we're going to, when McKibben brings up a point, um, we are going to give some of the refutation of that point. But I think even more importantly, we'll give, I think, a more accurate picture of the issues. Um, and let, let me make that more concrete. The issue ultimately in this debate is, do fossil fuels make our planet a better place to live or a worse place to live? So all of the evidence has to go in that direction, you know, one way or the other, I mean, when you're, when you're presenting it. So when, when McKibben is making a point, what he's saying is, overall, fossil fuels are making our planet a worse place to live. And then so much so that we need to outlaw 95% of them. So if that's his conclusion, we need to know from the outset, that is a very, very large burden of proof. Because he has to show not only that there's some warming, but that there's such dramatic warming that's so dramatic in its consequence and that we're so unable to cope with via technology and um, that the only solution is to essentially outlaw fossil fuels. So when he, it's not enough for him to simply say, oh, this, this or that claim, or something's going wrong in the world, and I, can, I think I can attribute it to CO2. Now, you, you need to show something truly massive and conclusive that's, that's going wrong and that can't be coped with using uh, fossil fuels and technology. And as I think as you'll see, he comes nowhere near uh, getting that. And in fact, um, as I stressed in a previous episode, he never even really names his conclusion. Instead, he, he gives you a series of... of uh, just assertions and that seem to imply that fossil fuels are bad, but there's no specificity, no quantity, so you can't know um, what is the magnitude of the risk, and then at the same time, what is the magnitude of the risk of doing uh, what he says, which he never really acknowledges. So in terms of all of these issues, when he raises, we'll talk about the oceans in a second, you know, we're, we always want to know what's the actual connection to life, to making the planet a better place to live. So that's going to be you know, the first kind of thing we ask, what's the connection between this? And then what is the actual state of affairs? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it staying the same? And then how, if at all, can this be attributed to CO2? So those, those are three big questions. How is this area connected to life? Uh, what is the actual state of it? How can it be connected to CO2? I think that's, if you're going to make claims either way on these issues, you need to be able to answer uh, those three questions. And with that, let me welcome our guest for today, who is Stefan Hen, who is a researcher at Center for Industrial Progress and, and was incredibly helpful to me in preparing for this debate uh, and also gave me a lot of uh, great feedback and uh, just factual information uh, after the debate after the debate. So he hasn't been on the show yet, but he's been giving insight uh, here for over a year. So I thought it's high time that he that he joined us and, and you can learn some of what he knows. So Stefan, welcome to Power Hour. Hello, and thank you for inviting me, Alex. All right. So Stefan, I am going to play uh, McKimmon's first point and then we will comment. Point one. 
In the past, fossil fuel has been a boon to this planet. This is perhaps obvious, but it is worth stating. And though it's perhaps unseemly to quote oneself, I actually think I put it fairly well in 2008. Coal and oil and gas are miracles, a solid and a liquid and a gas that emerge from the ground pretty much ready to use. They lie at the heart of our modern economy. We should be grateful for the role that fossil fuel played in creating our world, and equally grateful that scientists now give us ample warning of its new risks, and engineers increasingly provide us with the alternatives that we need. The transition away from fossil fuel won't be simple. It will require great focus and resources if it is to be done quickly, but it is the task of our time. Okay, so Stefan, let's, let's start with the first question, um, although this is obviously something I have an opinion on too. Uh, what is the connection between fossil fuels and, and human life? Well, overwhelmingly, it's a positive connection. I mean, we have seen great increases in all measurements of life for human beings during the fossil age. That is, life expectancy went up, health went up. We had a growing population. We are better fed today than we were 100 years ago. So on every metric, we are better off using fossil fuels. Uh, now, what about uh, what about the state of it in terms of uh, in terms of fossil fuels' role? You know, the magnitude of the role, because you know, given what McKibben uh, is asserting here, you might think, oh, well, it's something that's that's declining or even you know disappearing, and we just have to get rid of the the last vestiges of it. Well, we can look at the numbers and say, well, are we in decline in oil use, in natural gas use, in coal use? No, we are. Every year we are growing in consumption of all the three fossil fuels and um, there's no indicator that this will stop soon. So they're obviously necessary and in high demand. So wh why are they uh, in such high demand? I mean, especially because engineers increasingly provide us with the alternatives that we need, as McKibben says. <laughs> well, I don't think they do so. And uh, they certainly do not do this at the same cost or the benefit cost ratio, better to say. So they're the best fuels we can get for the money we spend on them. Yeah, and I think that's, that's often the issue of cost, I think, is, is underrated because cost means that someone in China can get a refrigerator versus not getting a refrigerator. Uh, and this comes up more in the debate, so I, I don't need to address it too much here, but there's just the whole issue of reliability where the alleged alternatives McKibben is talking about, namely solar and wind, uh, are fundamentally unreliable. They're not, they don't replace any power plants because they can't deliver reliable power. So at most they deliver a very marginal amount of power uh, that's very expensive that's, that's mostly uh, for show. Now we should mention, um, which came up, that, I mean, two notable exceptions that are nuclear power and hydroelectric power, which McKibben is, is generally uh, opposed to, and neither of those emit CO2. So it's, it's revealing that not only does he think that we can get rid of fossil fuels, but that we can, we can get rid of or at least uh, keep draconian restrictions on the other, uh, the other practical sources of of energy. So this, this overall is just, uh, if, if we ask ourselves, um, what is the, you know, what is the conclusion? I mean, the conclusion is that, that we don't need fossil fuels going forward. Um, and the evidence is that fossil fuels continue to improve our lives uh, going forward. So this is simply 
this is all uh, false. Um, and if we look at the evidence McKibben gives, it's, it's essentially non-existent. Um, the fact that someone states a string of sentences that are related to the conclusion does not mean that it's evidence. So if he calls it a miracle, um, uh, you know, and talks about his gratitude and, and says vague things like the transition won't be simple or require great focus and research, that's all just that's all just word salad. It, it has absolutely no no meaning absent real evidence. And what real evidence would mean um, would be either would would be real evidence that other things can um, can even come close to approximating what fossil fuels can do. And so there's no such evidence. And and what this then points to the rest of his argument, the rest of his his points are almost entirely negative. They're going to be about the piece of the puzzle that is the threat or alleged threat of fossil fuels. But from the outset, he has completely invalidated his overall case because he has not acknowledged the positive. He's dismissed it with a couple of sentences that are false um, or irrelevant. And thus, the whole area of the risks of not using fossil fuels, he's essentially tossed out as, as non-existent. And thus, it's imp and, and I mean this literally, it is impossible for him to have a correct conclusion because if, if you take the key variables in a system and you're trying to understand how they work together and you throw out one of the variables, which just so happens to be inconvenient to your ideology, um, then you cannot come up uh, with a correct conclusion. It would be as if you're, um, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out you know, whether your business is profitable uh, or not. Uh, and you know, someone is saying keep the business running, and some is saying shut it down. And you have some divisions that are you know losing fifty thousand uh, dollars, and then you have one division that's making a billion dollars, and then you somehow forget to put that uh, on the profit and loss statement. Well, then you'll come out with a loss and say shut it down, but it can't be the correct conclusion. So this is like leaving out that million dollars, or more like a uh, hundred trillion dollars in terms of. Uh, that's probably a big understatement in terms of, of the value. So that's that's his quote-unquote evidence and facts about the positive of fossil fuels. So essentially it's, it's you know, some combination of, I mean, it's, it's a falsehood, whatever the exact motivation and process that led to it. Um, so that's important. But still, it is important to study the risks, and, and it's important to understand how McKibben dis distorts those just as much as he distorts... Um, as he claims that there's a lack of benefit and, and how much of a distortion that is. All right, so let's play the second point. Point two, fossil fuel represents a risk to the oceans. Uh, as the oceans absorb carbon dioxide caused by fossil fuel burning from the atmosphere, they've grown 30% more acidic in the last 40 years. One result, according to the British Antarctic Survey in August 2012, is that marine species are having a much harder time growing skeletons and shells. On the current path, coral reefs will dwindle to insignificance by mid-century. And by the century's end, the oceans will be, as the French oceanographer Jean-Michel Gattuso summarized the most recent international symposium five weeks ago, by century's end, our oceans will be hot, sour, and breathless. Okay, before we get into to the truth about the oceans, I just want to uh, raise an issue that I raised during the debate, which is the, the difference between proven science uh, and speculation. So if we, um, there are two categories of speculation uh, I want to talk about. One is these predictions of the future, which all depend on 
climate models that uh, have the very serious problem of being of having uh, they're uh, they're literally unable to predict the climate. They've demonstrated time and again that they're unable to predict the climate. So any any claim based on these models should be at the very least qualified as this is based on something that there is essentially no uh, evidence for. So to treat that as in the same category as here's something that happened yesterday or here's something that um, even this issue of acidity, we're going to talk about what's wrong with that. But at least that's a claim about the state of the world. Now, it's, it's a very misleading and ultimately false claim, uh, but at least it's a claim about the state of the world. But if, if notice one, one additional tool to use in saying what's the evidence is, is making the differentiation between you know, a, a claim of proven science and, and, uh, uh, and speculation. And then another issue to ra I want to raise here is the issue of appeals to authority. And this, this is a common fallacy that you learn in logic class. But it's, it's a little bit of a tricky fallacy because certainly experts are essential in life. We need a division of, of mental labor. We need uh, different people to focus on things such as experts on the ocean. Now, I want to make a crucial distinction with experts. The, um, you know, what experts do, what a good expert does with the general population is he explains is he explains the right conclusion. He doesn't tell you the right conclusion without explanation. Because if you don't understand why something is true, you don't really understand it because you don't know where it applies, where it doesn't, what its magnitude is, uh, exactly. So for, for McKibben to be just repeating conclusions is is completely worthless. I mean, it's, it's less than worthless because he's um, he's giving no evidence. And in this whole debate, our job, of course, we can't give all the evidence and neither of us knows all the evidence, but our job is to give a conclusion and then give the essential, the essential evidence in a way that's graspable to people in the same way that if someone comes up with a new physical theory, he gives the evidence in a way that's graspable uh, to people. So to just, to just have this guy making, one guy making a speculation of this conclusion with no evidence, um, is worthless, and the only thing he's counting on is that other people haven't heard other people make a million other speculations, and he's counting on the fact that he's just uh, cherry picking. So th those are the, the going to be two recurring issues of, of proven science uh, versus speculation, and then uh, the last issue I just discussed um, in terms of appeal to authority. All right, so let's let's go to the the, the broader framework I set up, which is. Uh, you know, what is the importance of the oceans, and then what is the the state of the oceans? So, Stefan, if we just take right now, are are the oceans in some state that is dangerous to our lives? No, not at all. Um, what has happened since pre-industrial times is an incredibly mild drop of pH level from eight point two to eight point one over the entire time of industry. And uh, that is only measured on the surface of the oceans. So this is not even representing the entire oceans. So it's so a it misrepresentation to say that they've grown, I mean, leaving aside this 30%, which we'll get to in a second, it's misrepresentative to say they've, the oceans as such have grown more acidic. Yes, there's no way to measure that. We have, don't have the technology to measure the entire oceans. So do you think McKibben knows that or he just doesn't care. 
Um, he sh should know this because these 30% points um, have to come from somewhere. They are somewhat accurate for the surfaces of the oceans, but... Um, well, I think for his argument, he doesn't really care. <laughs> okay, so anyway, we have 8.2 to... Okay, so, but in general, it's that... I mean, the general point I, I take away from any of this stuff is I look at... I try to look at the big picture and I think, okay, what's... Is anything actually happening in reality that's harming our lives or that threatens to harm our lives? And I don't see any evidence that there's anything like that in the ocean. And if there's not, then it's pretty meaningless if he gives one study about some species having try, you know, tougher time growing skeletons and shells. I mean, lots of species have tougher times to the extent that they go extinct uh, all the time. So is there any real threat to human life involved here? Well, to put things into perspective, we can look at two things here. One is how much does the ocean surface pH vary naturally over short periods of time, let's say a month. And that is many times that 0.1. So, so the 8.1 is an, is an average, right? It's, it's an average yeah, over time. So, yeah. so the idea is that it goes from, let's say, 8.4 to 7.4. So if you claim that 8.2 to 8.1 is a problem, then it's really hard to explain because it's already 7.4 sometimes and the things don't die. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. So... Um, on the local scale and over short periods of time, so it's even sometimes day-night cycles, you have a much more variety in pH levels locally. Uh, yeah, so this is, I mean, this is just, I, you know, you don't want to say lie, but it's, this is just a complete uh, falsehood. Now, very quickly, can you just explain the number of 30%? Because 30%, 30% more acidic, you know, it's, you know, if you say about, like, acidic has this negative connotation as if acidity is always bad. And if I think, like, oh, the person has become 30% more acidic, you know, it seems like they become a real uh, jerk. So I think there's, a, or, like, there's 30% more acid somewhere. So you can explain 30% in connection with it's actually just dropped from 8.2 to 8.1. And both of those, by the way, are not acidic numbers. It's, it's on the basic side of the pH scale. Yeah, I mean, um, if you look at the pH scale, it's a base 10 logarithmic function, and uh, its numbers go from 0 to 14, where everything below 7 is acidic and everything above 7 is basic, and 7 is by definition neutral. And, um, and what does it mean to be base 10 logarithmic? That means with a change on the pH scale, you have the solution becoming 10 times more acidic or more basic. So that would be... So it varies, I mean, it changes in terms of how you're measuring acidity, it's changing by thousands and thousands of percentages as you go up and down yes. the scale? Yes, I mean, to, to become neutral for the ocean, they would have to be like, um, yeah, more than a, a thousand percent more acidic than that. And, and then finally, what about, what's the evidence that this is caused by uh, fossil fuels? Well, as I said, we are measuring surface pH levels and these are certainly influenced by CO2 in the atmosphere because 
the oceans and the atmosphere interact chemically. So there's a good evidence that CO2 influences surface pH levels, but um, that's true for natural sources of CO2 as well, of course, mm -hmm. like volcanic activity, for example. Sure. All right, let's go to point three. Point three. Fossil fuel is a risk to the cryosphere, our frozen regions. September 2012 saw a record low for Arctic sea ice, shattering old marks. NASA scientist James Hansen declared it a planetary emergency, and The Economist magazine, in a remarkable cover story, called it both a grave danger and one of the greatest changes in human history. The extensive melt changes the planet's albedo, its reflectivity, speeding up warming, and it may also have dramatic effects on weather. In October last month, a study in Nature Geoscience linked Arctic melt to weather extremes in the U.S., and NOAA, again last month, described a physical connection between loss of sea ice and extreme weather in North America. Okay, so again, I just want to point out that this is almost exclusively uh, appeal to authority. NASA scientist James Hansen declared it a planetary emergency. Okay, well, the vast majority of scientists didn't declare it, so why single out James Hansen? And more importantly, where's the explanation? The closest he comes is talking about the albedo, the, the reflectivity of the planet in terms of if the ice melts, then you don't have as much white on the Earth and you know white reflects, whereas black absorbs. But there's no sense of the magnitude of that you know, let alone why that would be an emergency if the, you know, planet became a little bit uh, warmer. And then a study in Nature Geoscience linked Arctic melt to weather extremes in the U.S. What's the evidence there are weather extremes in the U.S.? How does it link? What, um, you know, what's the evidence? Again, there's no, there's no causal explanation of what's happening. It's, it's just an assertion that some authorities that he's picked out of a million other authorities uh, have linked this and or have said X. And whenever you're talking about linking two things, especially something like Arctic melt to weather extremes, that's really hard to do. There's a really big burden of proof, and he gives absolutely no proof. So stacking up these things is completely uh, worthless. And you might say, well, what's, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to um, to look at the facts, um, you know, to look at higher level facts that we all have access to. So, if he could point to uh, really, there's something, you know, something is getting flooded, for example, uh, because of melting, or there's a major, you know, tendency toward flooding which we can't deal with. Um, that would be significant, or somehow the food supply is being affected. But he can't even do that for the overall picture of the Earth. That is, there is this inconvenient fact for his position that life on Earth is generally getting better and better while he claims it's getting more and more catastrophic. And that's why he steadfastly avoids and avoided during the debate all of the big picture evidence um, that I focused on and that's very easily accessible and that, that squares with everything we just experienced because the big picture contradicts him. So instead, um, you know, he he cites just random things, often false, always out of context, uh, and just appeals to authorities who happen to be in his movement and happen to be, you know, part of this, uh, you know, this gigantic movement, which unfortunately has has monopolized, which is a whole story in itself, but but you know, monopolized the whole government uh, scientific uh, 
establishment. So this, this, even if he was right, this kind of method would be completely unacceptable. What he owes us is an explanation, um, you know, with facts that we can uh, that we can verify. Okay. That said, I want to talk about the big picture from I think in, in a way that will that you can actually get an idea of what the evidence is. So, Stefan, what can you talk about what the importance of the cryosphere is? This is not a term that I I use to I mean I ever use. Um, so I'm curious if you were to if you were to answer the question, what is the relationship between the cryosphere and our lives? What what is it? <laughs> Well, I mean, the polar regions are certainly important for weather patterns in general. So that influences human life. Um, but if you look at it at a long term, the cryosphere has been shrinking since the last ice age. So North America and Europe, for example, have been under an ice shield during the last ice age. So they've been shrinking for a long time. Wait, I, ju I just want to emphasize to that. great benefit. Yep. Hold on. I just want to emphasize that that um, not not where I live in Southern California, but if you live in certainly if you live in Canada, there's something like there was something like a kilometer of ice, right? Yeah. So I mean, something imagine Bill extent, McKibben yeah. back then watching that warming, and you know he could say, "Look, our cryosphere is being uh, destroyed." Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why uh, modern humans came from Africa to Europe recently in, on a geological time scale. So, yeah, and of course, there's also a reason why Bill McKibben focuses on the Arctic, because we see a different picture for the Antarctic, because the record sea ice loss in the Arctic corresponds with, at least in wintertime, a sea ice maximum in the Antarctic, and that is growing in recent years. And of course, uh, we do not see global warming speeding up. Quite the contrary, it has been flat for the last about 15, 16 years. So if we are losing all this ice, why hasn't global warming sped up? Yeah, so, so again, I, my takeaway is that if we look at the, the broad picture of what is the connection between this and human life, um, it's, it's, it's pretty standard. And as I mentioned in our cross-examination, if you're in a general warming out of an ice age, it shouldn't be surprising that things are melting. And this brings up an issue of, of uh, one other thing that one can think about when looking at these things, which is what, is the, what are some of the assumptions that the person is making and, and claiming that something is good or bad? And here, one of the assumptions is that change in the climate is inherently bad. They're also assuming that it's always caused by human beings, but I don't think that should be our attitude. That what we should look at it is with, as with any other change, is this change, uh, you know, beneficial or harmful? And in, and in either case, what can we do within that context to maximize uh, our well-being? But the idea that the idea of just looking at the Arctic and seeing melting and just thinking, oh my gosh, we broke the Arctic, life is over, shut down all the factories, it's so, it's so inappropriate um, because you're dealing with something that's an entirely normal thing, which is, is, is things in the world, you know, t the things are changing all the time, human beings are not. And yet the, 
and at the same time, you're willing to completely change in a negative way the the only thing in history that has really that has allowed us to live a modern lifestyle. So it's as if as if there's some in the name of some imaginary unchanging climate and unchanging nature, they're willing to destroy the most positive changes that we have made in civilization. All right, let us go to point uh, four. And actually, before point four, I just want to say, like, even even with the three points, you, if you're listening to it and you don't know much about it, it's already overwhelming. And and McKibben knows. He's a smart guy. He knows full well that you can't understand any of this. So what it is, is it's uh, what Eric Dennis called a war of attrition against the mind. Uh, it's just that he's trying to beat you down by making you feel like there all these sentences, all these studies, it must be true. And yet he's, he's, his, his arguments don't support his overall conclusion in any way. And if, if we look at the actual state of affairs instead of these out-of-context claims and appeals to authority, it's almost the exact opposite. Okay, next. Point four, fossil fuel is a risk, risk to hydrology, to the way that water moves around the earth. Warm air holds more water vapor than cold, a basic physical fact which will do much to explain the 21st century as it unfolds. The atmosphere is 5% wetter than it was 40 years ago, a staggering change. This means destructive deluges are on the increase. The American Meteorological Society in August of this year said heavy rainfalls are up 20% that extra moisture superpowers our storms. As Kevin Trenberth of NOAA put it, when that moisture gets caught up in a storm, it invigorates the storm, so the storm itself changes. We get a look at the sense of the results by looking at recent huge floods from Pakistan, where 20 million were dislocated in 2010, to Metro Manila, which was submerged this summer. Munich Re, the world's largest insurance company, the part of our economy that we ask to analyze risk, reported in 2010 that the number of loss-related floods have more than tripled since 1980 and that, quote, the rise cannot be explained without global warming. All right, so just to make a few preliminary comments on that are basically the same I've said before because he keeps using the same fallacies. Again, it's just a string, um, you know, a string of assertions that are either speculation or just you don't know what to make of them. I noticed that, well, Stefan, I'll ask you about this. Why does he keep using 40 years ago? That just seems like the, the most arbitrary uh, starting point. Yeah, I mean, the as we know, the CO2 emissions by humans um, grow exponentially, and that means the vast majority of human CO2 emissions happened during recent decades. And if you want to make a connection between these CO2 emissions as compared to other CO2 emissions, then of course you want to focus on recent years. And it's also interesting because um, the satellite era began not so long ago. So you can make up a lot of record records happening recently because the actual record back in time is not well it's not that great we can't measure a lot of these things going back a hundred years yeah so anytime I see 40 years ago in terms of evidence I just think okay what happened 60 years ago what happened 80 years ago what happened 100 what happened 200 uh, but let's let's again go to the the actual big picture so what is 
how does hydrology, the way the water moves around the earth, as he put it, how does that, how does that impact our lives? Well, I mean, the allegation is that weather gets worse on a warming planet because, I mean, he states his basic physical fact that warm air holds more water than cold air. And uh, that's a really a simplification, and it's not backed up by the empirical evidence that this is making things worse. If anything, um, dry regions got wetter and wet regions got drier recently. So we don't see that catastrophic dry out or these extreme floods increasing at all in the empirical data. It's pretty flat, if not a downward trend. But is there, so, I mean, he's talking about, he's very insistent on this point that, that wetter air is somehow a menace to life. What is the, what's the status of that? Well, I mean, you can look at it this way. Um, do you see more biomass and biodiversity in the tropics or in the polar regions? And the answer is pretty obvious. You get much more life in the tropics because there's more moisture, there's more faster water cycles, and so on. Um, okay, and just, just, I think the most important category is, uh, is there a dramatic increase of, of dangerous storms that are harming human life? Because that's the implication here of citing, you know, Pakistan and the insurance company and this and that. But what's, what's the overall big picture of storms and, and human life? Well, there's no, no real... You cannot really measure any human influence on storms this way because big storms are really rare events and you cannot identify a single cause like this. But what you can identify is um, something that is called um, aggregate cyclone energy and that means how much energy do we get during a storm season every year and on a global level this is down since the 80s and 90s so what we have here is a lot of natural variability and we cannot identify any human influence whatsoever so there might be some human influence in that but we couldn't tell Okay, so the, the overall context is that that there we're talking about again fossil fuels, which are the key to modern life, including the key to keeping ourselves safe from various parts of nature, including the climate and and any given weather event. So we know for certain, uh, and I stress this during the debate, that you know climate related deaths have gone way down thanks to you know, the energy we get from fossil fuels and the whole technological civilization that makes possible. So even if there is some, you know, there's a question of how much CO2 impacts any of these things. And then there's a question of whether it's, if you added them all up, it's positive or negative. But we know if you add everything up, including the benefits of fossil fuels, it's so, so dramatically uh, positive. Now, I just want to kind of pick on one thing because we discussed this offline. Stefan, could you talk about this this insurance company? I found it fascinating that Bill McKibben is is now, you know, you know, the sort of 
uh, I would call him a major anti-capitalist, is, is relying on an insurance company to bolster his scientific claims about the future. <laughs> well, so, I mean, an insurance company certainly has an incentive to overstate future risks because that means you need insurance. And I think that is what's happening with public communication. So if Munich Re claims you cannot explain recent f damage without global warming, that's not found in the empirical data, that's not found by scientific studies. I mean, that's just public relations, that's just communication to the public. We will face grave risks, you need insurance. Yeah, and I mean, if you want to talk about conflict of interest, I mean, what, what could be better for an insurance company than, than saying, here's a, here's a phenomenon that is very popularly acknowledged, so it's, it's bound to continue, and therefore we're certain that your insurance premiums need to go up because the costs are going to go up. I mean, that's just the ultimate, that's the ultimate uh, piece of justification for them. So to, so to use someone who has... I mean, besides like Bill McKibben and Al Gore, who would be regarded as, you know, pariahs if if the truth about this were known, um, you know, these insurance companies are among the most incentivized people, and thus, uh, I mean, just to cite them as I'm trying to think of, uh, I mean, it's like saying, it's like you cite, um, I mean, it's worse than this, but it's like you cite, uh, you know, the Nike running shoe division. Uh, you know, saying that running will increase your life expectancy by eight years. Well, you might be a little suspicious about that. So to use this as a scientific thing, I mean, it's just one among many uh, distortions, but it points to the fact of just the, the, the complete sloppiness and lack of careful thinking and lack of explanation, lack of presentation of evidence. And everything he says contradicts the actual truth, which means the actual, the actual impact of fossil fuels on the planet. So we're, we're in five points, and every single point is false. So in, in the debate, um, you know, Bill, uh, you know, essentially complained that uh, I engaged a couple of these points and, and, you know, gave an explanation of why I thought they were misrepresentations. But he, he expected me to respond to all of them at the time, and he complained that he had done uh, so much, you know, so much hard work in understanding these issues. Um, and all I have to say is that if this is understanding or explaining, then I would hate to see what, what a lack of understanding on his part would look like. Okay, let's play point six. Point five, fossil fuel is a risk to agriculture. Once fossil fuel increased yields, but now global warming is a killer for agriculture as a remarkable study in Nature in 2009 demonstrated. The study from researchers at Stanford and the University of Washington found that we are increasingly taking our main grain crops out of the range where they thrive and that we can expect grain yields to fall at least 20 to 40 percent as temperatures rise this century. Real world results bear out the research. Europe's record heat wave in 2003 cut corn yields 36 percent and wheat 21 percent. 
This summer's heat in the US and Central Europe depleted grain stocks and caused prices to surge 40%. In October 2012, the charity Save the Children reported 24% of families in India and 27% in Nigeria were now scheduling food-free days. This planet ate more than it grew in six of the last 11 years. All right, a couple of thoughts before I ask Stefan about the, the big picture. One is this issue of, of timeliness, and we'll see in a later one that he, he talks about a story of energy. I wrote about this at Masteries. He talks about a story of energy that he completely distorted. He got the guy's view exactly wrong, but the focus was it just came out this morning, so it must be true, or it must be decisive in effect. So for McKibben, the more recent a claim, the more power it has. And yet this is exactly the kind of issue where we need to take a big picture and somewhat long-range perspective because there's a lot of variability uh, that goes on. And so if you take you know, a five or 10 year time scale, let alone you know, one heat wave in 2003 and one claim by Save the Children, which is allegedly a, an August scientific body, I guess, and then India and Nigeria, of all the countries in the world, that they're doing this one practice of food-free days. This is exactly, uh, it's worse than useless because it's trying to, to push you in a direction and yet, yet you're not uh, getting the aggregate. So the question is, Stefan, what, what has been in the past and what's the general trend of fossil fuels impacting agriculture? Well, first of all, fossil fuels enable the current state of agriculture, which is overwhelmingly much better than the state we had in the past, like in 1900 or 1950. We have much more productivity, we have much better land use, we have much better fertilizers, we can feed a growing population that is much bigger than it was, let's say, in the 1950s, and we have more calories per head than we ever had in human history. And uh, that is in large part to fossil fuels, and it would be impossible without fossil fuels. And well, what's also interesting is wait. So, so I just want to get. The, uh, can I just yes. jump in for a second? I want to because he talks about expect grain yields to fall twenty to forty percent, which is again the complete speculation is based on these models. And um, but I mean, what what kinds of percentages are we talking about in terms of the rise? Because He's talking about taking away the things that led to the rise. So he's implying that, oh, 20 to 40 percent, you know, that means that fossil fuels are, even if that happened, oh, that impl he, he's implying fossil fuels would be some sort of net agricultural uh, loss. Could you comment on just how big the magnitude has been of the gain? Yeah, I mean, we have more than doubled the grain yields uh, through industrial agriculture, so it would be, it no, would no, but, be like but, but you mean 80 90% reduction if we would take away fossil fuels once and for all. So there's no comparison, even I, if that number would be correct, which is which it's obviously not. But it's, so. it's I mean, it's, it's even more than that, right? Because it's, it's your, I mean, let's just take India. I forget the exact numbers on India, but I mean, India, you know, India was a, a starving nation, I think, in the, the 60s, and it at some point became a next net exporter uh, of grain, thanks to modern technology. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it always depends what level of technology you still allow. So, but yeah, it's a, 
it's really I mean fossil fuels are really the source of modern agriculture and they are responsible for the vast majority of the improvements over the last century. Yeah, so as I said in, in the talk, which is I think people's favorite line, fossil fuels are the food of food. And without, I mean, without them, there is literally no known way of, of feeding the world. So to talk about, to, he's using this to justify a conclusion uh, that we need to get rid of fossil fuels in essence. So it's really, I mean, this is, of all the distortions, besides the first one that, that fossil fuels are of the past when they're being used in records amount in record amounts to sustain people's lives, this is, this is uh, I mean, I think the most uh, unforgivable because he's literally, he's really saying that, that food is poison and poison is food. Um, uh, Stefan, can you comment on this idea of taking our main grain crops out of the range where they thrive and what we can expect? This sounds to me just completely anti-technology because our ability throughout history has been to find more and more places where we can grow things and new methods for growing things. So it just seems impossible that we're somehow uh, going to force ourselves to grow all of our crops in you know, the Arctic which I guess he thinks is going to be a tropical paradise or tropical hell because it was caused by human beings. Well, yeah, there's this, um, I mean, the other distortion is that he takes this short period of time where you actually have a drought season, like in this past year in the United States, and then you extrapolate this as if it would go on forever. And we know that, like in the 1930s, there was this dust bowl and it apparently occurred totally natural. And, I mean, the great thing about fossil fuels is that they protect you against the consequences of droughts like this. You can transport food, you can grow food in other places, and so on. And you can, you can generally adapt your agriculture to whatever comes your way. If you take that away, you are confined to the small area around you, and if that happens to be impacted by local climate change, yeah, but for you. All right, let's take point six. I think I said last point was point six. It was actually uh, 0.5. I get a bit overwhelmed by the number of points here, and we're, we're not even halfway through. Point six, fossil fuel is a risk to other species. In 2006, the Nobel-winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said the risk from extinctions from climate change could run as high as 70% of species. In January of this year, a new study in the proceedings of the Royal Society found that researchers may in fact have underestimated that risk. Extinction of population of frogs, butterflies, ocean corals, and polar birds to climate change have already been observed. As the National Geographic put it, no matter where they look, scientists are finding that global warming is already killing species and at a much faster rate than had originally been predicted. All right. Um, again, no evidence, no explanation of how global warming kills species. He still has not shown any dramatic global warming because the temperature record shows none. He still has validated none of the climate. I mean, I should say still, this is an opening statement, but when I when I raise the temperature record, which is very mild, you know, 0.5 degree increase from um, in the past 70 years, including 
nothing in the past 15 years and then 70 years in the period before that where there are essentially no uh, CO2 emissions from fossil fuels or, or very little. I mean, the whole debate, he didn't address that and he didn't address the fact that climate prediction models can't predict climate. So he's given no evidence and he hasn't, he never challenges the evidence. Again, it's just he's picking some people who uh, believe this. And to further undercut what it means that someone says something, all of these fields, uh, a lot of what's, what always happens in science is you're on the frontier. So you're, you're in, there's a lot of speculative stuff and there's no problem with that. What is a problem is a so-called journalist uh, pretending that his own that the, the uh, claims that he finds ideologically uh, congenial represent the big picture and that the speculations of the people he finds congenial uh, represent absolute truth. That's simply, um, you know, it's, a, it's in effect a lie. Uh, so it's, it's just all of this stuff when I, when I hear it, I mean, even if I didn't know uh, the counter studies and that kind of thing, it just sort of washes over as, okay, he just said something and gave me absolutely no evidence. So I just feel as if, okay, he's trying to intimidate me. But the real question is, what is the, let, let's start off with even, forget fossil fuels. Stefan, what is the, how, how should we think about other species and species extinction? Because it's treated as any time, you know, any kind of species extinction is dangerous and requires dramatic action to uh, prevent. And yet, my sense of it historically is that, you know, nature is a competitive system. Species go extinct all the time. Um, it makes sense, human beings as the, you know, dominant species, it makes sense. Maybe we cause more extinctions than others, but, you know, the system itself doesn't, doesn't get destroyed. It's just the distribution of different organisms. And that's something that, that changes incredibly over billions of years, millions of years, thousands of years. So it just doesn't, any given extinction the only question is, is this somehow harmful to human life? So could you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, extinction is the normal cause of things for most that ever lived on Earth. I mean, far more than 90% of every life form ever existed on Earth has died out in the past. And the real goal is uh, to not let it happen that human beings die out. And I mean, is there any evidence that we're suffering extinctions that are somehow causing human beings to die out? No, I don't see any evidence. I mean, the empirical data often even states that biodiversity and biomass are expanding with global warming in general. So, um, well, what you have essentially is, an, as I said earlier, an expansion of the tropics and what that, that does is it just expands the range of species living in the tropics. And, well, we have m much more life in the tropics than in the polar regions, of course. So you can't have it both ways. You can't argue we are warming, we are expanding the tropics, and then say, well, a lot of species will die out. Yeah, that's true, but they will be replaced by other species, if that was to happen. Yeah, well, it kind of reminds me of how he treats storms, where he has this narrative that somehow more water in the atmosphere means you're, all the water is coming from the desert, so the desert gets drier, and then it's downpouring on already wet regions. So, you know, essentially, 
I don't know his exact examples, but like, you know, Seattle is just going to get flooded all the time. And Southern California is just going to be in a, you know, even more of a desert than it, than it naturally is. And that, that seems very convenient for the, for his ideological position, but completely bizarre as a, it's in effect any, and this is a broader point about the whole catastrophic climate change view to the extent human beings are affecting the climate it's necessarily going to be that some of the stuff ends up being better and some ends up worse. It'd be the coincidence of history if everything that we did to the climate was somehow harmful. I mean, that would be an unbelievable... If we could do that, then we could engineer the climate positively. And to add just one point here, even under a perfectly stable climate, which is impossible for Earth, um, even in a perfectly stable climate, species would die out and would be replaced by other species. That's normal for life forms on Earth. So in general, there's a very, uh, unfortunately, there's this view of, uh, the view of nature, the, the delicate balance view of nature, which is part of the environmentalist dogma, because human beings are change nature in all sorts of ways. You know, we transform it for our purposes. And one easy way to attack that is to say, well, nature is this delicate balance that if we disrupt that, it's necessarily going to make all the resources that we have available to us somehow, uh, you know, somehow extinct. And in reality, nature is a, as we should learn from Darwin, among others, nature is a competitive system. So, you know, if one species dies out, then that, you know, leaves, that gives other species an opportunity to grow or you know, species replace other species it's just a completely false view of nature, which ironically is made possible by the incredible stability of fossil fuel-powered industrial civilization. Because we ourselves live such comfortable lives, including having comfortable homes, predictable routines, a general lack of disruption by nature, it makes it possible to think that somehow nature is like that. But, you know, nature, as I think someone said, is a, a cruel mistress. I mean, nature is a really rough place to live absent the stability and security of industrial civilization. To, so to say, in the name of comfort and stability and health, we're going to get rid of the source of comfort and stability and health, that is uh, just the most false and destructive argument I can imagine. All right, let's go to point seven. Point seven, fossil fuel is a risk to coastal cities. In the wake of Sandy, we may feel this more acutely. Its storm surge came on top of seas that had already risen a foot. Unless we slow global warming, that will be at least three times higher by century's end and perhaps much more. A report this morning showed that despite the best efforts of the North Carolina legislature to outlaw sea level rise, the rate here and along the eastern seaboard was actually accelerating among the fastest in the world. This obviously makes coastal storms more dangerous. J. Marshall Shepard, president of the American Meteorological Society, said last Wednesday, as sea level rises, whenever we get even a garden variety storm now, we're going to see more damage. New York is only 17th on the list of most vulnerable cities in this world. Calcutta, Mumbai, Dhaka, top the list. All right. Fossil fuel is a risk. I don't mean to laugh, but I kind of mean to laugh because this is... Uh... All right, so let's, let's ask our basic question, which is 
what is what is the state of coastal cities? What is the actual actual overall state of coastal cities as we've used more and more fossil fuels? Uh, sorry, I don't understand the question. <laughs> All right. So bas basically, so McKibben is saying here that coastal cities are in jeopardy. The implication is coastal cities are becoming more dangerous and that they're going to become much, much more dangerous in the future. So my question is, are, have coastal cities become more dangerous um, as we've used more and more fossil fuels? No, I would say that um, the risk from climate in coastal cities has dramatically decreased. So, I mean, storms hitting coastlines um, have been much more severe and much worse in the past. Not because they had more energy, but because people were less prepared. And that, in large part, of course, depends on fossil fuel use. Yeah, so let's, let's take the issue. Well, I'll take something close to home. So I would love to live in, you know, a nice, one of those really nice places in uh, Laguna Beach or Newport Beach here in Southern California. And unfortunately, those are many, many millions of dollars. And why hasn't there been a dramatic drop in the price of those things due to fears of global warming? Well, many reasons, but ultimately our ability to cope with climate is so good that we can, we can actually accept um, you know, the, the sort of greater storms that occur on coastlines you know, versus, versus certain parts inland. Or we can, whatever risks are there, more and more people can afford to accept them. And in general, your, your safety is much, much higher. Uh, the real danger with, with, you know, weather and climate is if you don't have the energy and technology to cope with it. So, uh, Eric Dennis, who works with us here at CIP, he was in New York during it. And he was just saying like how, how stark it was, what happened when they lost power. And that was maybe 50% of the power. And McKibben, and he said, well, you know, McKibben is demanding that we cut in, in, in response to a storm that cut 50% of our power for a week, McKibben is saying we should cut 95% of our fossil fuel power uh, forever. And that, that makes very, uh, very little sense. There's this, again, there's this anti-technology bent where there's almost no acknowledgement of the fact that through energy and technology, human beings have made their lives much safer and more secure, and that in response to future threats, they can make them that much more secure. Um, that said, though, what is the state of this claim about sea levels rising a foot? I mean, first of all, he says he gives no time scale, which is typical. Like, I mean, I'm sure they've risen a foot from some point. Um, but what is, what is the state of rising a foot and then three more feet? And, and what would that mean even? Mm, yes. Yeah, so um, if we take Sandy as an example, I mean, New York has a tidal gauge measurement since the 1800s. So we can see there's a, a linear increase in the sea level for New York. And that has pretty little to, to do with uh, CO2 emissions by human beings. So what we can say to put things into perspective is that over 
all the sea levels have been rising by something between 2.7, 3.1 millimeters per year. But recently, according to the best data we can observe, it has been flattening. So it's not increasing, but rather decreasing. It's still rising, but again, I mean, local changes on land rise and sea level rise are much greater in magnitude than sea level rise from global warming. Um, and then in general, what about our ability to cope? Again, life has gotten better because we, because the things that really matter most are not these, you know, variations in climate, whether, um, you know, man-made or non-man-made. It's, it's just our, our level of technology, which is directly tied to our level of, of energy. I mean, what, what about just the fact that we have places like the Netherlands where, you know, you have high seas and they deal with it very well? Well, yes, you have much better protection thanks to technology, but you have also much better forecasting ability. So people in New York knew before Sandy would hit the coast that it would be a bad storm. So they could either leave or make preparations and so on. And that dramatically increased the number of dead people. Dramatically, so wait, dramatically increased died, or, or I think in earlier times, I think you said many in, more people would be victims of that storm. Just, just in case, I think you might, I forget, but I think you might have said dramatically increased. It's dramatically decreased the number of people who died. Yes. Right? Yeah. Just, course, yeah. just to be clear. Uh, at this point, I want to pause and just, just remind ourselves that when, when we talk about things have been getting better, there, that's almost viewed as, a, as an automatic course of events. Uh, but it's the least automatic thing you can imagine because it's, it's a course that's only been around for 150 years and that has been made possible by a level of political freedom that's allowed the production of fossil fuels and other technologies. And you could stop all of that by just cutting off the source. So when we look at the current state of affairs and say, look how much better it's gotten, that means look how much fossil better fossil fuels have made it, have made it which means look at how much worse it would be if we were to take away fossil fuels, let alone uh, nuclear and, and hydro, in favor of these um, expensive, but, but even more importantly, like fundamentally unreliable and unscalable uh, solar and wind technologies, which are some of the biggest technological failures of the past uh, 100 years. And in keeping with the, the idea that there's an anti-technology bent here, uh, I think that the support of those technologies has absolutely nothing to do with global warming because CO2 does, I mean, nuclear doesn't emit CO2, nor does hydro. It has to do with the perception that these are somehow more in line with being in harmony with nature because we get, uh, you know, we're getting our energy straight from the sun, you know, directly through photons or indirectly through the wind and how, how the wind, you know, the, the sun heats up the air in different places and that causes the wind. It's viewed as that somehow that's not exploiting uh, the planet, and that's that's the or not not changing the planet as much, and that's why it's viewed as good. So I think it's it's important that it's this ideological anti anti technology, anti industrial mentality. There's nothing scientific about it. Uh, although just for fun, Stefan, comment. Can you comment on just? how much mining and resources are involved in solar and wind production? 
I mean, you have to see. I mean, there's this common phrase that the sun doesn't send us any bills, right? <laughs> say, uh, say, say, it again. True say it again. For whatever created fossil fuels or uranium in the Earth crust and so on. But what you have to see is that all the people who create solar panels and windmills and all the different parts that are involved and that install them and maintain them, these people are sending us bills. And the price is actually a good indicator of how much energy and how many materials are getting into each of these technologies. And what you see is that wind and solar are very pricey for a reason. You have to mine, let's say, rare earth in Inner Mongolia to create the uh, permanent magnets in wind turbines or, or the solar panels and so on. And actually what's even more important is that you need much more incapacity for wind and solar than for conventional energy because you cannot control them. They have a very low capacity factor. That means if you have like a megawatt in nuclear to replace it, you need several megawatts in wind energy to get the same amount on average in actually usable energy. And that means you need a lot of material, a lot of mining, a lot of energy to produce this energy. Well, and even then, I mean, even if you had, I would not be comfortable, even if there were three times as much, I mean, capacity is such a misleading term, but if it's, if, if there were, if in effect, um, you know, the, the maximum capability of the wind turbines in an area was three times, you know, the nuclear plants, and they just replaced the nuclear plant with the three times wind, I would not feel very secure. Because it, because <laughs> yeah, it can, because, because it, yeah. I mean, the wind blows when it will blow and not when you need the energy. So you need either storage capacity or redundant backup capacity. So that again and adds to the cost which is not part of the visible bill for wind and solar and that cost is bared by conventional energy grids yeah yeah i think that's a good uh, a good point to end on because we have this this point from the beginning of mckibben completely denies the fundamental role of fossil fuels in our present and future well-being and then proceeds to uh concoct uh, a bunch of just complete uh, distortions or falsehoods about about the dangers. So he acknowledges none of the benefits, uh, fabricates or at best completely inflates the dangers. And then in the next on the next show, we're going to be talking about some of his claims where he uh, he claims that there are all of these promising alternatives in in uh, in solar and wind which he has either very little understanding of or very w little willingness to tell the truth about. And it's, 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 a, good, it's, a, good, um, it's a good point just to raise initially that we're talking, when, we're talking about unreliable sources of energy that literally, with anything you know, close to present technology, literally cannot power the world. It's not just that they're expensive. They're expensive when you use them in small amounts and when they can be backed up by coal or uh, or gas or or nuclear or even oil, 
Um, but there is no phenomenon of an economy run on wind or an economy run on so I mean, there was an economy run on wind during the Middle Ages, but, but not a modern economy where you actually can produce a lot of things when you need to, uh, to sustain human life, you know, to an ex expectancy of 80 rather than expectancy of 30. So, Stefan, next time we are going to talk about the rest of the 15 points, including the more economic points, um, the that just to preview that it's a, uh, a risk to national security, a uh, risk to economies, a risk to public health, a risk to freedom and liberty. Um, Bill was uh, especially insistent that I address this point, which I think is a very um, wrong point, but I'll, I'll be happy to address it on the next show risk to our democracies um, can be solved by fossil fuels can be replaced largely by increasing uh, energy conservation and then finally renewables really work so that's on tap for next time but for now Stefan thanks for for coming on and I look forward to to doing the next segment with you yeah thank you until next time power hour Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.